Hello, and welcome to Oxford Policy Pod. I'm your host, Shruti Palaniapin, and this is the first episode of season three, in which we're discussing an important topic that warrants further attention, the ethics of vaccine distribution. Across the globe, COVID-19 continues to rage and has ravaged our communities, leading to a grave milestone of nearly 2 million deaths worldwide. As we look to what 2021 has in store, one thing giving most people hope is the vaccine. With vaccines now approved for emergency use from Pfizer, Moderna, various Chinese, Russian, and Indian pharmaceutical companies, and most recently, Oxford and AstraZeneca, distribution of these highly anticipated vaccines is underway. Countries, including the UK, the US, and China, are among the countries with the greatest number of COVID-19 vaccines delivered, having administered millions of vaccinations. As these rollout plans kick off, ethical questions about who should receive the vaccine first arise. So what is the role of public policy in answering these questions of bioethics? How do international organizations develop guidance? And how do governments, policymakers, and public health officials implement this guidance and address this pandemic which has presented competing priorities? Today, we'll unpack these questions and more as we discuss not only how these vaccines should be distributed globally, but within countries. And along the way, we'll look at some of the lessons we should be focusing on. Welcome to Oxford Policy Pod. In a globally connected world, infectious disease knows no boundaries. One of the yeah. jokes I used to make was I said, it's more important that Kim Kardashian get shown on TV getting vaccinated than Anthony Fauci. You shouldn't be stockpiling against future need. You should be passing it on and manufacturing more. We need a partnership here between governments and pharmaceutical companies. So our first guest today is Professor Jonathan Wolfe. He is the Professor of Values and Public Policy here at the University of Oxford's Blavatnik School of Government. Recently, he co-chaired a WHO working group that published a policy brief last month on the ethics surrounding COVID-19 vaccine trials. And today, I am super excited to talk to him about another area he's done extensive research on, the ethics of vaccine allocation and some of the guidance that he has produced. So, Professor Wolf, thank you so much for joining me. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes. So I know you've co-authored this high-profile paper with other leading ethicists and health experts titled An Ethical Framework for Global Vaccine Allocation. So tell us a bit about how this group came to be and really the significance of its interdisciplinary nature. The group was convened by uh, Zeke Emanuel, who is a doctor and a bioethicist who was involved in the, in fact, the Clinton healthcare reform, the attempted healthcare reform in the US mm. some years ago. And he had the idea that uh, we needed a different way of thinking about vaccine distribution. And so he just out on his own initiative put together a group, I think there were 17 of us on the paper, uh, political philosophers, bioethicists, people with a medical background. Mm. And the motivation for it, I think, is that a lot of traditional bioethics has been about doctor-patient relations. But many of the questions about global health are more like questions in political philosophy than traditional bioethics. So they're about resource allocation. And so his idea was to get together philosophers who'd worked on bioethics, but also people who had an interest in global justice and distributive justice, so that we could you know, bring to bear other concepts and theories that would be used in other areas of philosophy to think about global health 
So tell us about those fundamental values that your team thought were so important to uphold and how your model in particular really helps address some of those super tough ethical challenges. What we were doing in this paper is thinking about uh, both a, a type of ideal vaccine distribution, but also the real politic of where we are in the world and how unlikely we are to get anything that is really ideal. And you know, a lot of people are struggling with this. The WHO put out its own guidance where they have said that we should distribute the vaccine internationally uh, relative to population, at least mm -hmm. initially. Yeah. So bigger countries should get more vaccine, uh, smaller countries less vaccine, until about 20% of the population is covered. And then when 20% of the population is covered everywhere, so that would be the frontline health workers and the most extreme vulnerable groups, we then look at risk and distribute according to where the uh, vaccine is most most needed. Mm -hmm. What we did in our uh, paper is argue that the proportionate distribution doesn't really have any ethical justification. We want to talk about the need for the vaccine. So, so where is it most needed? And that our argument says that, um, you know, the vaccine should in the first instance go to those countries that need it most so where the outbreak is most virulent those are the countries that should get the vaccine first and when you talk about need how is need defined within these countries because i know there's this whole debate on whether countries should prioritize saving lives or saving life years life years meaning reducing the years of life lost due to the pandemic in the case of the pandemic it doesn't on the face of it make a huge amount of difference because people who are older at much greater risk of dying. So if you want to maximize life years, in fact, you still give to old people, give the vaccine to older people because there are much more chance of dying. But there are some countries where younger people are dying now. At some points, I'm not sure, I haven't looked at the latest information, but at one point in India, it appeared younger people were dying than other countries. And so that gives us a question, should we prioritize India because mm -hmm. it would save more life years there, or should we just count the number of lives? And and we made the decision in this paper that life years are more important. So if in a country, younger people are dying, that does have higher priority. Following from your point on prioritizing life years, we know that premature deaths are more prevalent in low and middle income countries, yet wealthy nations are the ones with the power to enter into these massive contracts with pharmaceutical companies and reserve and purchase the bulk of these vaccines. So how do we ensure that Number one, rich countries are not monopolizing doses. And two, that low-income countries are not getting overlooked in the distribution of vaccines. Well, that's exactly the question. And from an ideal point of view, um, we would say no, countries shouldn't be able to sign those individual contracts. It should all go through COVAX, which is the world facility for distributing. And so you know, in an ideal world, all the pharmaceutical companies would uh, supply COVAX and COVAX would, would pass on. But we know we're so far from living in that ideal world and that every country that can get access to vaccines will want to vaccinate its own population before passing. Yeah, this vaccine nationalism that mm -hmm, we've yeah. been seeing. Trump had signed a contract to send the vaccine to COVAX. You know, America, if anything, would bring about a revolution, that would, I think. So the idea that you would be saving people abroad before you save people at home, I think, would, would is not acceptable as a matter of politics as mm -hmm. distinct from ethics. So we realize there's a real politic here. Um, but we also argue that even though there is some reason to prioritize your own nation, 
uh, it's that's not absolute. And so there's a point where um, you should be passing certainly excess vaccine over. Uh, you shouldn't be stockpiling against future need. You should be passing it on and manufacturing more. And how much of this is also on pharmaceutical companies to share that type of data, technology, and intellectual property to other countries? The only way we're going to get a vaccine is through the pharmaceutical companies. So there really is a question of what their obligations are. And here, I think I would just want to insist on a distinction between who has the obligation to act and who has the obligation to pay for that action. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's very important that pharmaceutical companies produce and distribute the vaccines internationally. Of but it doesn't, it doesn't follow from that that it's the shareholders of the pharmaceutical companies that should be paying for it. I think we should all be paying for it. We need a partnership here between government and pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, because it definitely is a global challenge that everyone needs to take a role in. You can't think about it from a self-interested perspective. Mm. So then do you anticipate further challenges, say, once wealthy countries inoculate large portions of their populations and open their borders to permit travel? Because I would assume that given how interconnected our world is, there could be these massive issues if only rich countries could vaccinate their populations and low-income countries were left experiencing high transmission rates. Well, that was actually the reason why the United States supported the WHO in the first place. That when the WHO came into being, it, it was as much about enlightened self-interest, saying that um, in a globally connected world, yeah. infectious disease knows no boundaries. And so if there's infectious disease anywhere, it has it is in effect everywhere. It has to be controlled. Um, so I, I think the you know, we will definitely see uh, distribution of the vaccine around the world. So it's really a question of time now mm-hmm. uh, and a question of priorities. The only comfort is that at the moment, the, the, if, if, you were going, if you were going to do a distribution on the basis of need, with a few exceptions, it's the high-income countries where the need is. So by accident... But maybe also because, yeah, yeah I, I guess it depends on how well you've handled the virus. And as we know, some of the well, major well, countries think, have really yeah. struggled. Well, so I think that I think there was a certain complacency in the high income countries thinking that we're so sophisticated, we can easily get this under control. Mm-hmm. Whereas in some low income countries, they knew their health services would be completely overwhelmed. And so they took precautionary action very early on, whereas the yeah. high income countries didn't, I think partly out of complacency, which has been been called out. And let us hope that the vaccine arrives before we see major outbreaks elsewhere. Of course, yeah. I know everyone's really hoping for the best in the coming year and is anxiously waiting their turn to get the jab. So hopefully the vaccine will reach massive distribution in the coming months. Fingers are definitely crossed there. Now I want to shift to thinking about some of these distribution challenges within a country, because as we know, countries are having to kind of create their own guidelines surrounding it. And even in the UK, their first phase, um, the top priority group is those in care homes. And then the second priority group is frontline workers, social care workers, in addition to those who are age 80 and above. And the U.S. has slightly different guidelines. Mm. The CDC guidance is to first prioritize healthcare personnel and residents of long-term care facilities in their top priority group. And then in the second priority group is 
frontline essential workers and people who are ages 75 and older. So I want to ask you, though, is it justifiable to vaccinate, say, a young, healthy healthcare worker Mm. as opposed to someone who is more vulnerable, either because of their age or because of a pre-existing condition, and therefore would be more at risk of severe disease or death? And what do you do when you have these competing values? Well, it's very tough when you've got competing values and um, any decision you make can be criticised because there are, going, there are going to be people who lose out or feel that, that it's been done wrong. I mean, I, I think frontline health workers, um, the, there are a number of arguments for why they should be given high priority. And we, we're talking here about health workers who are at risk of both being infected and passing on infection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, to, the most obvious reason is we, is we simply need health workers to be fit and healthy for the sake of the rest of us. So it's not a purely course, self yeah. thing. Because the it, hospitals are, are already overwhelmed. You yeah. <laughs> really need the personnel. And, we, and in some places, a very significant percentage of people are off sick at any time. So just out of keeping things going, uh, we, we need health workers to be as healthy as they can be. Um, they are also at great risk of infection. It depends, of course, on their role and how good PPE is, but they are at greater risk. But I, I think there's also the moral argument of a type of social contract, which, which mm. is that if we're asking people to put themselves at great risk for the sake yeah. of us, we owe them something in return. Mm-hmm. And uh, the vaccine is part of, I, I would say we owe them higher wages, we owe them very high uh, levels of security, and we owe them the vaccine because they are putting themselves at risk for the sake of the rest of us, and and we owe it to them in reciprocity. And why people in care homes above people in hospitals? I, I think the answer is that a lot of people in um, care homes are in cognitive decline, and so can't obey social distancing rules, yes. putting everyone mm-hmm. else at risk. So yeah, think, that's a really interesting point. Mm-hmm. So I think care homes have, uh, can be slightly chaotic, whereas uh, hospitals, of course, you have emergencies. It's a bit more containment. Yeah, yeah. There's much more discipline in the hospital, um, and so I, I think it, it is very important that uh, social care homes and care workers, who often work part time and move from home to home, working more than one home, should be vaccinated. So after we vaccinated those in care homes and elderly individuals. Which age groups do you think should come next? And where do you think young people fall in this mix? So some people have said what we should do is vaccinate those who are spreading the uh, infection. So this would be people aged 18 to 25 or something who are going out clubbing and spreading. Um, But I I think it's going to be very hard to make that argument. Um, First of all, there are other things they can be doing, like not going out. So of course, are, <laughs> so I agree beha- with you. <laughs> so there are behavioural interventions. Also, there are just too many people in that, those groups to give it high priority. But again, you see, I would say that there's an argument that says you do the older people first and then go to the younger people. We, we've seen that once all the over 50s are, going, are done, then the next group should be teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, and Because it's it said that once you get below the age of 50, there's not that much difference between the different risk groups. So it's actually very hard then to decide who to vaccine on a risk-based analysis. So teachers, frontline, uh, and as I've said before, people working in supermarkets, I think, should be vaccinated. People delivering our mail should be vaccinated. 
So those yeah. essential workers is a broader category. And Professor Wolf, I want to now ask you about another group that's at greater risk. I mean, throughout this pandemic, we've seen how people of color have disproportionately contracted, been hospitalized, and died from COVID-19. And we know from the research that racial and ethnic minorities are more likely to have underlying health conditions such as diabetes. So should people of color who are more vulnerable to the virus be prioritized in the vaccine allocation plans? You know, one of the most striking things, I think, um, early on in the pandemic, there was a newspaper story I saw about the first 12 doctors who died in the UK. And yet none of them were white British. They were all mm-hmm. um, from uh, you know, first or second generation immigrant families. Of course. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, we see the same thing in the United States. And, and there's a great um, correlation be- between in, in the US being uh, African-American and being at higher risk of death if infected. Uh, so I went to a fascinating paper uh, that talked about um, racism, structural racism, being a victim mm-hmm. of structural racism and its effects on so-called biological aging. So uh, a distinction can be made by chronological aging, how old you are in years, and biological aging, which is in effect how old your body is. Mm. And and there are ways of measuring this now uh, through markers on chromosomes. And it does seem that structural racism puts years, being a victim of structural racism, puts puts years on you. I, it, wow, it, yeah. That your body is like the body of an older person. It's devastating, yeah. Um, and so what that would mean is, is that uh, someone who's been the victim of structural racism has the uh, risk profile of someone in an older chronological group, if, mm. if this is right. Okay. Now, this obviously is very controversial. The science is in early stages. But there is an argument that would say that we, should, we shouldn't treat people only by their chronological age, but also by their biological age yeah. in terms of risk factors. Um, we, you know, this is incredibly controversial. We don't have the data. Um, it probably would cause so much dissent at the moment. But certainly thinking about future pandemics, if we're unlucky enough to have them and, and the way we should prioritize in the future, we really need to think very, very hard about the groups that have been. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but so as we wrap up today, considering everything that we've discussed, I'd love to ask you what advice you would give to vaccine manufacturers and distributors or government agencies, elected officials, healthcare system leaders, all these folks who are now responsible for devising and implementing this vaccine distribution plan. So what would you tell them? Um, What I would love to see more of is a recognition of the expertise and systems that already exist for distribution, um, that public health in a country like the UK has been one of our strengths. And so it's very disappointing to see um, contracts being given to private companies that have got relatively little experience and that the existing mechanisms where there is such knowledge and expertise and goodwill being pushed to one side for whatever reasons. It may be inexperience. It may be a false view about where how you can do things effectively. It could be as People are alleging some forms of corruption or cronyism. Uh, but for as long as um, government is not making use of all the networks, all the expertise that's already there, 
we're, we're going to be struggling. We need to be working on uh, you know, finding where the reservoirs of expertise and goodwill already are and making most use of those. That sounds like solid advice. And I think it's safe to say that we're lucky to have you as part of those teams as well, helping steer the ship ahead. So Professor Wolf, thank you for sharing your time and expertise. We really appreciate it. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Now that we've unpacked some of the ethical questions, how are the ethics put into practice? For that, I'm bringing in Oxford Policy Pod correspondent, Venetia Layler, who is joined by Dr. Ira Klein. He's the chief medical officer of Health New England within Bay State Health and is leading the rollout of the COVID vaccine in Western Massachusetts. Dr. Klein, thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Venetia. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, thank you for having me. In the U.S., there doesn't seem to be a centralized national strategy. The federal government is simply distributing vaccines to states. So help us understand this a little bit better. After the state receives the vaccines, what happens next? Where does Health New England fit into this process? And how are you as a chief medical officer leading the vaccine rollout in Western Massachusetts? I think that's a very good question because in the United States, uh, while we did have pandemic planning and we did have recommendations from the CDC, in this particular instance, the uh, uh, ruling from the federal government was that the vaccine manufacturers, those five manufacturers on the warp speed uh, path, uh, being uh, Moderna, Pfizer, uh, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, and the uh, Oxford Novavax vaccine, um, those were uh, ordered to be shipped through group purchasing organizations to the states, whereby the states would decide how that would be distributed at the regional and local levels. So group purchasing organizations are those uh, intermediaries that are able to purchase large volumes of drug products. So as the regional sites were supplied with the vaccine, what happened was uh, the states basically were able to direct what volumes went to what areas, uh, i.e. local hospitals, chain drug stores, uh, grocery stores with pharmacies, things of the like. But the initial set of vaccines went uniquely to hospital health systems because the phase one per the CDC guidelines were to immunize direct care providing healthcare workers, others who would be at high risk of contact through the provision of acute care. So all of the vaccine allocations to date have gone uh, to hospitals with a very small subgroup going also to long-term care facilities. At the Health New England Health Insurance side, we're really working on what will happen in phase two, whereby we have to understand who are our high-risk uh, insured members so we can notify them to get them in line before the general population. We're working on phase two as well as our membership in phase three so that they get what they need. So right now you're at the stage of all, most of majority, if not all the vaccines have gone directly to the hospitals and the clinics for frontline healthcare workers. And yeah. so now you're kind of thinking about phase two, where do we go next? We have these CDC recommendations and it's ultimately now up to the governors to decide who is going to be prioritized. 
I know there's been some discussions across the state about who's in phase one, who's in phase two, but how do you think these recommendations from the CDC has been adopted in Massachusetts and how are you seeing it play out right now um, in the Western part of the state versus others? Actually, Massachusetts has pretty strictly adapted the CDC guidelines, which has been great because it gives a level of um, congruence in how we approach this. I think um, ideally we could strictly interpret the CDC guidelines and say phase two will be individuals with two plus comorbidities at high risk for COVID-19 complications, individuals 75 years of old or older, and residents and staff of public and private low-income and affordable housing. Then you could also have uh, educational workers of K through 12, grocery store and transit workers, public health workers, uh, public works people, and then after that, adults age 65 and older, and then individuals with single morbidities. I, I would say that what we're doing now is we're looking at what can be an effective distribution mechanism in partnering with the entities that do distribute the vaccine that are not the overburdened, distracted hospital uh, systems. From a population health perspective, the most effective immunization strategies are probably going to be the ones focused not around hospital systems, but around those entities that exist on the corner of every town in the United States. And by that, I mean chain drugstores. We have uh, many thousands of these uh, owned by uh, large corporations, i.e. CVS, Rite Aid, Walgreens. We also have what we call in the U.S. big box stores, with the largest being Walmart. So if you think about the ability to reach the entire population of the U.S., you can't just think of hospital health systems, which are often concentrated in particular areas. Rural critical access hospitals have often closed. Uh, There's a consolidation of hospital health systems. But the trained drugstores, the big box stores, and even grocery stores that have pharmacies are available across the country. So those are the ones that we're going to be working with. And we're actually planning on that in Massachusetts and bring uh, people from the State Department of Health and local community leaders together so that we can actually have a plan. And that plan is one that uh, has an equitable distribution of vaccine in our state, at least in the Western part. And I think that flows well into the next little bit here, looking specifically at different ethnic groups and the challenges they face uh, throughout the pandemic, specifically Black, Indigenous, and Latin Americans, where we've seen higher death rates due to COVID in the States. And I mean, there are concerns about how will these numbers affect take up of the vaccine or um, equitable allocation of the vaccine to these communities. So you touched on this a little bit in terms of not having enough information to do this, um, to communicate with folks effectively. But I guess another how question of how (laughs) will we ensure we're we're doing this the best of our ability and also so as to not perpetuate some of these more negative health outcomes. Yes, I I can't tell you that I have an answer for the entire United States, but I can tell you what I think will be a semi-good news story. Massachusetts has evolved in trying to ensure those without insurance on the individual and small group markets and as well as expand access to Medicaid services. So as part of being in Medicaid in Massachusetts, there's a government entity called MassHealth that has control here and sets both rate policy and access to care policy. And part of that is that in order to be a participant, you need to get the social determinants of health 
for the people participating in Medicaid. Now that information, if we can share it and aggregate it, if we're allowed to, because we have HIPAA regulations and other data privacy regulations, if we can share that, we can actually get a handle on what it is that we're doing or not doing for our racially, ethnically, and economically disadvantaged populations who may not be getting the vaccine. So we're hoping, at least in Western Massachusetts, as we get people to sit at the table, to bring in our Medicaid leaders. And those Medicaid leaders work daily with the local community leaders. I think it gets back down to common sense, whereby to move people to get the right treatment, you have to understand them, know where they live, how they live their daily lives. And uh, as was said uh, at one time, you know, all politics are local. Same is true yeah. for healthcare. All healthcare is local. How do we get these people who live in this housing project to trust us and to line up, get immunized, and then if it's a two-dose vaccine, come back for that second dose? And that last part there is critical. How do we get them to trust us? I think so many people are skeptical um, of, of the vaccine saying it's been released too quickly. There's no way it can be effective or folks who've had you know, negative experiences interacting with the healthcare system. And there's been this generations of distrust in some cases. So how do you address this distrust and skepticism? And is that something that we're already feeling on the ground in terms of how folks are engaging with the vaccine rollout plan? Well, I will say that early signs are pretty positive that there's less vaccine hesitancy than we thought. Strangely, many healthcare workers have, <laughs> were supposedly by survey having a lot of vaccine hesitancy. We found in our system that we've basically gotten about an 80% uptake rate, which is 10 to 20% higher than was expected. And of those remaining 20%, many of those will sa have said, I, I'm not saying I'm not going to get the vaccine. I'm saying that uh, I'm just going to wait and see. So we hope to do even better. I think right. at the local community level, it really is uh, a, a, an exercise in finding trusted leaders who will lead by example. And if those people you respect and trust feel that getting immunized is a good thing, then they will do it. And one of the yeah. jokes I used to make uh, prior to joining Health New England when I was in the pharmaceutical industry was I said, it's more important that Kim Kardashian get shown on TV getting vaccinated than Anthony Fauci. Now, Dr. Fauci has done a tremendous job in this country in being honest and open about what the issues are, but it gets yeah. done by modeling behavior at the local level. Who do you respect and trust? That's amazing. I think one of the big lessons here from this discussion is we're really going into the communities and there's no way you can try to serve the folks in those communities without, like you said, understanding them and reaching out to those leaders so those leaders can then engage with them in a way that they understand. So with all of this in mind, um, and the reality that most states across the country are not where they intended to be in terms of administering the total number of vaccines. And no country in the world has administered that second dosage. What can we look forward to in the coming months? I know we're focusing on uh, Western Massachusetts here, but I think if you have any insights even broader across the country, as we're planning ahead, what can we look forward to um, in the next coming months? I think the learning curve will uh, grow and uh, go vertical and we will get much better, much quicker. If you look at the states who've done a good job, it's interesting. They are states that I think have somewhat uh, mostly rural populations and are somewhat homogeneous. North Dakota, West Virginia, Maine. 
And you think about, well, why have they done a good job? Maybe because they're not bickering over what their definition of community is. And so yeah. I think other states will break into regions and say, we've defined what community is and we know how to serve them. Uh, and I think once that happens uh, and the f- supply of vaccine becomes greater, and we also learn how to maximize and optimize our ability to manage that cold chain storage and distribution, uh, right. more people will get immunized much quicker. And in some cases, it's a matter of, uh, you know, we kind of blew it at the federal to state level. But I think at the state to regional level, people will understand that they need to have better dialogue. You know, team-based care is the way to go, especially in communities where you don't necessarily understand that having the right people on the team is going to make you more effective in doing what you do. So we're seeing two things here, kind of communication across different state levels and also engaging more intentionally with the communities. On that beautiful note, (laughs) um, you've given us so much to think about, Dr. Klein, and your efforts to guide the citizens of Western Massachusetts through this and, you know, by and large, the world is, is tremendously appreciated. So we definitely take, we definitely appreciate the time you've given us today. So thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for joining us on this episode as we explored some of the ethical challenges surrounding vaccine distribution. And I would be remiss if I didn't say that even though vaccines are now being administered, we all still need to do our part to stem the spread of this virus. And I know you've heard it many times before, but wear a mask, socially distance, and wash your hands frequently. We will overcome this pandemic soon. If you liked this episode and want to hear more, subscribe to find our latest episodes on Spotify, Audioboom, or Apple Podcasts. And to keep up with our latest episodes, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Oxford Policy Pod. This episode of Oxford Policy Pod was produced by Leanne Ryan Hume and Jessica Creechie, edited by Alicia Oslan, and researched by Venetia Layler and Andita Venkatation. We hope you'll join us in two weeks when we look at the Paris Agreement under the Biden era.